If you're solving something where a person needs to go to the office to get your value, you got a problem. They don't need a train or an office space anymore. They need a toilet bag. Delta Airlines, any of the major airlines, have lost 40% of business to business travel. What percentage of that business travel is for the first business meeting? Half? 70%? So when Verizon bought Blue Jeans Network to compete with Zoom, who should have bought that company? Probably an airline. Okay, because they believe they're in the plane business. 40% of the revenue has nothing to do with the plane. It's about being there in the first meeting. So like that, that mindset is so, when you ask, what is the need? How did it change the world? What are we solving for? And work backwards, what do we have? Then we change everything. So I, I think that's the permission question. So that's the business building question is to ask what changed in our customer need. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left. What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong. On this episode, I speak with an experienced entrepreneur and an angel investor in over 40 companies, co-founder and CEO of Bionic, growth transformation and innovation expert, and best-selling author of New to Big. He has a BA in industrial design from the Rochester Institute of Technology, received ID Magazine's International Design Award, and was the Ernest Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award winner in 2008. As an entrepreneur and businessman, he has co-founded NetX, SmartRay Network, Renaissance Integrated Solutions, All Option Return, and Clickable. As a New York best-selling author, he has produced the Intellectual Devotional book series, The Startup Playbook, and most recently, New to Big. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a pioneer, an early angel investor in SpaceX and Airbnb, ignites growth revolutions and loves helping people build a permanent ladder to the moon. David Kidder. David, welcome to the show. Well, that is a, a very uh, special introduction. Uh, too much, but very kind of you and uh, very grateful to be here. Uh, so it's fantastic to have you on the show and at a time where people were have been disrupted quite a lot and are thinking about innovation and growth mindset. You, this is going to be a really pertinent and important uh, conversation today. When, when most kids were playing small with marbles, were you playing big as a child? Well, funny, uh, when I was, uh, my, my like teddy bear, so to speak, was actually something I called my broomer. And my broomer was a electric blender, hand blender, hand mixer that my parents had. And I ended up cutting a quarter off. And that was like my 
my toy. And uh, so I don't know if I was into products or technology or whatever, but I was fascinated by that thing. So a bunch of uh, small oddities that led me into industrial design and, and, uh, and, and, and the creation of things, which taught me how to tell stories and learn how to build businesses. So very grateful for the broomer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most interesting uh, kind of examples of, of people when they were young is, you know, having something a little bit different. So, you know, what, what really fascinated your mind um, during your formative years around the world? You know, what sparked your interest around the world and you were like, hmm, why is that so different or how does that work? Well, I grew up in a family of uh, four kids. Uh, my parents have been married for in now over 50 years. Uh, wonderful people, quiet town, um, upstate New York. I'd, I did, had never really even thought about New York City, didn't know much about like business or the world. Um, my, you know, summers were, you know, just get outside and see in September sort of things from mom. Um, very loving home and, uh, but also a disruptive youth. Uh, you know, things uh, changed dramatically when I was in my early teenagers. And, um, and so the things I was most interested about was just uh, how uh, the things, how the world work in the context of computers. My uncle at the time was executive and uh, clinical psychologist, and he kind of got me started on the beginning of the Apple computers way, way, way back in. And um, that inspired a, 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 or maybe ignited an interest of what's inside of things. And maybe that goes back to the conversation about the hand mixer, but I've always been fascinated by um, the shell of things, but more importantly is how they work, what's inside and the creation of that. And I think that those things sparked interest in, in uh, the identifying of needs and how to solve them and how to make things. And so was that, that obviously was the ignition for you to go to Rochester Institute of Technology to study industrial design? Yeah, I mean, I was always an artist. I was like, you know, voted most artistic in my high school class and things like that. Um, so I, I, I loved design. I loved, um, but I loved things like uh, to make things, create things, sell things, you know, it just was about a thing type of mindset. And maybe it was, you know, probably cause I, we didn't, we didn't have a, a lot of money, even though I was probably fine growing up, didn't realize it. Um, so anything I wanted, I had to earn. So that started, you know, very young ages of paper routes and working on farms and lifeguarding and stuff from probably 12, 13 years old on till today, probably. <laughs> but um, um, I was always just uh, curious about uh, how things were made. And I think that's where it comes from. And you talk about there about lifeguarding and things like that, you know, in your first job you ever had, what was the greatest sort of leadership lesson you were taught? Well, I think, you know, running a paper route's a pretty good uh, first job. You know, you got to uh, get up very early in the morning, 5.30. You know, you got to get in a bike, you know, rain, uh, winter, the snow, during the summer's hot before, you know, especially when your summer's off, you're still working. You work all year round, uh, seven days a week. And, uh, and you had to go deliver the goods. Uh, and you had a relationship with the manufacturer because it dropped these papers off at your house every day, which you pre-bought. And then you could you would get paid the difference. So if you sold, in this case, I think I had 25 or 30 papers, which was, you know, probably a mile and a half, two miles of homes in my area. And then at once a week or once every two weeks, you have to go and collect the money too. So on Sunday afternoon, you go and knock on doors and you you know, it's the paper boy and you gotta collect the money and pay the difference. And so I think I learned very uh, early on something that Michael Bloomberg learned late in his career, early in his career, that actually started Bloomberg, which is you got to ask for the check and stop talking. And there's an amazing, you know, uh, exchange of value, so to speak, when you're 
you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old going to homes and you're not sure about relationship and adults and asking for money and uh, delivering value. I think it taught me some really powerful lessons about work ethic and and perseverance and uh, collection in this case. So it was uh, pretty wild. You bring up something really interesting there. And I, I talk about this quite a lot with uh, a friend of mine, Damien Curry, who, who talks about the future of thinking. And and we talk about sales and negotiation. And it is so true that when you ask for something, so you ask for the money or you ask for action, you then must go silent. And the person who speaks first loses. And so it's so, so important. And it's great to hear you pick that up at a young age. Yeah, it reminds me, one of my the things that frustrates my family is that there's this, um, whenever I drive, and when I'm at an intersection and light turns green, uh, I always count to three, one, two, three. And um, because inevitably in my lifetime, two or three times, someone's run the red light and someone's either got hit or I would have been hit and killed. And so in the same way, it's like, you know, waiting five or six seconds after that ask is like, you know, takes forever. But it's the space that allows someone to consider things. But if you think of it as just simply the odds that someone say yes, the more time sometimes you give someone the consideration, uh, the more likely they are to say yes. So just asking and then pausing very often allows a chance for consideration for someone to say yes. And it's, you know, it's like flipping a coin sometimes. You'll take those odds, you know, um, if you ask the question enough times, someone will. So that's a good lesson to learn. Hmm. So you've been an entrepreneur a majority of your working life. You know, what is it about entrepreneurship and founding businesses that has really attracted you? Yeah, so it's been really my whole working career since I was, you know, I graduated college early about 1920, maybe it was 20 and started my first company. So I've, I've, I've worked for one company that acquired mine, uh, my second company for a period of time, but not much. Um, and I think what has attracted me is, I'm not sure I'm a bad employee. I probably am a, a good team player, but it's just that I, there's a certain, th- certain set of things that I do, you know, superpower that I think with conviction, I should only do. You know, I don't believe in being well-rounded, I guess. Maybe quitting, quitting your weaknesses is a life philosophy. And I just don't want to invest time and energy in things where I'm not in my best and I'm not being judged for things that I'll never be because there's someone's looking for a well-rounded person and I'm not. I have three things, two or three things I'm probably, you know, very, very good at, 10 times better than other people. And that's all I want to spend is time and, and energy in that. And I don't want to be judged in any other way around that because it's really not worth, I guess, my time, so to speak, um, to be evaluated on a way that someone cares about that I don't. So I think that was probably the initial friction of why I had to work for myself. The second thing is, is I, I love creative environments. I love the, the, the job of building a company. Um, and there's a difference between the company and the business. They're really two different things under the banner of being a founder and a CEO. And so I've really invested, I'd, I'd say, equally in both of those outcomes to create my own systems, my own culture, those ideas, but I have led to great companies. And I think that those two things, company building and business building, are things to be in your lifetime a master at if you want to be an entrepreneur and, and be a successful founder. So um, you can't really do that in a big company. You couldn't do that in, you know, working for someone else. Um, but that's my journey. I know I have lots of friends who are incredible number twos, right? They're the best in the world at what they do. And I think finding your proprietary gift, finding where you fit and investing and going all in is really critical. 
I think when you get outside of that, you know, in places that really aren't your giftedness, I think uh, becoming someone you're not supposed to become is not a good use of your time. So I think I was, I knew that very early on in my career. Very good. And well, you've opened a loop here, and so it's important we close it. So what are the three sort of superpowers that you, that you say you're really strong at? Well, I mean, I, this, these are sort of dovetail into a lesson that uh, a great VC uh, who invested in one of my companies mentioned once, uh, Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures. He said that the job of a founder is three things and three things only, and they're really hard to do well. The first is have a vision uh, that's right and on time. Market timing drives most outcomes in business. So understanding where the future is going and being alive when it happens and being the best in the world is a huge part of predicting what's coming. Um, and part of that being a vision is you need to kind of be right on time in the year you're in, right? On a quarterly basis, but where you're headed is really important. Number two is, is that you have to be able to hire the right people in the right seats at the right time. So talent is massive. So getting, you know, any one of your first kind of 20 employees wrong is often fatal, right? You put them in the wrong seats, the wrong time, you know, six months to, you know, 90 days to find them, six months to figure it out, 90 days to replace them. It's a year and you're out of business. So yeah, you kind of have zero mistakes, one through 20, you get two or three on the way to 50 employees and maybe five to 10 away to a hundred. So hugely important to get that right. And the third is, is to never run out of money. And there's only two ways to do that. You either can raise it money or you can earn it. And um, over the years, I've uh, really had a, been invested in building relationships where those three jobs as a founder, I've tried to do my best to be, you know, very strong at those things. Um, despite, you know, having, you know, modest success and a couple exits, some that didn't work, some that did, the odds are given enough time, if you're really committed to those things, you'll be able to build, you know, at least one great company in your life. And hopefully that leads to a life-changing outcome socially or economically for you. Mm, and one of those, you know, sort of great ventures that you have had the fortune of creating was Clickable. Uh, so, so obviously early in the you know, real phase of dot-com phase coming through, how did Clickable come out as an idea? And for you, why do you think it was such a great um, idea that worked well in the marketplace? Well, Clickable was an interesting one. It was my third company. I had two exits prior to that um, and uh, of companies I started. And then I kind of took some time off, traveled the world over you know, 20, 30 companies, countries, and then came back, got married, had kids. And um, I really missed sort of like the group of engineers and you know, designers and, and product people I've been working with for my last companies. And so I kind of got the band back together. And so in this case, um, because I come out of like data and marketing and advertising the spaces, um, one of the spaces that was uh, suffering from a lot of competitive friction was the search marketing and the social marketing spaces. So you know, the friction it took to optimize your advertising across those platforms because they all competed for dollars and attention was very high, technically planning and otherwise. And so we started the company to with an idea, right? A painkiller in search of a need, so to speak, which is the problem was skill friction across platforms. And what we built was something and patented was something called an ACT engine, an actual analytic engine that told you how you're doing and what you need to do to improve every day. And so it kind of made you bionic, ironically, the name of my current company of the last eight years, better, stronger, and faster than you really were. And so um, uh, we built, you know, a 10-person team that went to 20 and, you know, over a period of four or five years, built a company with 180 people in it and raised uh, a little over $34 million. 
And what was interesting is that we discovered along the way that we hadn't built one company, we built two companies. In fact, we had a beautiful kind of Siamese, you know, twin-headed kid, <laughs> which as you will learn in the startup world is, is, uh, is beautiful to you, but to no one else. And so the only way to solve that was really, and this is a tough metaphor, which was to sort of break it in half and sell it in two parts. And so the reality was a, was a tough lesson, which was, you know, with some of the best VCs in the world behind me, you know, I built um, uh, a unfocused company, a be- amazing company, great culture, great product. But we had done things where we partnered with one company, a strategic partner, and they took us in one direction while our core direction was going another one. And so it was very hard to reconcile that. Um, so a lot of great lessons. And what came, what, the good thing that came out of this after we sold the company is I went out and, you know, asked, you know, about 40 of some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, you know, Sarah Blakely of Spanx and Elon Musk and Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn fame, who wrote the Ford of the book. It became the startup playbook, startup playbook. I asked them, how do you bet your life? I really wanted to understand, like, what did I miss? How did I not see that coming? And the good news is, is that there was an answer after 300 hours and 40 interviews that there was really a criteria of five critical lenses to view the world through before you bet your life on something. It becomes true over time and leads to incredible outcomes. And so that lesson has really carried me into my new company, into now a bootstrap, you know, uh, 20 plus million dollar company with amazing group people, so. Mm, fascinating. You've, on one of your websites, you've got the purpose of my life and work is to ignite growth in people and organizations' lives, empower people to discover who they are becoming and ultimately solve our time's grand challenges. Now, a lot of, you know, there's lots of statistics out there where people um, are not passionate about their work. They kind of just turn up and do the work. How, what, what for you is your strategy into really trying to ignite growth in people when they come into your companies? You know, it's, it's interesting because that, that purpose, Bionic's purpose, we ignite growth revolutions comes from that statement. And I used to think about that in the context of like, you know, around, um, you know, money or startups or, you know, transformation of big companies. And it is to some extent, those things are still important, but it's really a bit about the interior life of leaders, right? You know, that growth revolution begins and ends inside of us, especially the leadership, because the, what, what the companies are usually missing. And I, when I say company, I want you to think both personally and professionally, quite frankly, is, is the permission, it's the ceiling of how far you're willing to go or how big your belief is that something's possible. I'm not saying you need to be pathologically optimistic uh, and certainly not irrationally pessimistic, but in the middle, right? <laughs> optimistic, right? Rationally optimistic is a critical place to be that allows permission. So you really can't live or lead through a lens of fear if you want to create growth. Because, you know, there's this great statistic that we have that about 70% of all growth comes from 7% of capital deployed. And that it means is, is that, you know, um, you know, if you do a hundred things or you spend a million dollars or a hundred or even 10,000, 7% of that money is going to return all of the value. And uh, the question is, is, well, how did I make that investment? Like what was the 7%? When you go back to the beginning, uh, there's two signals. One is high conviction, meaning why us? What's my proprietary gift? I truly have an unfair advantage. And that kind of transcends the word passion, quite frankly. It's obsession with skill. And the second reason is non-consensus. 
you make all of your success and bets from your ideas or ideas that have the highest disagreement rate. And so whether that be a management team who disagrees or, you know, Sarah Blakely's journey where she told no one about her idea when she found a Spanx because she didn't care because she knew no one would believe it. In fact, they didn't. And so it was non-consensus. So growth lives in discomfort, both in the question of why me and now, and secondly is, is, is belief, the role of you know, going against that friction. So there are actually mindsets and signals and lenses that ultimately live and die on the permission inside of ourselves and companies that we create on what is possible and what we're gonna, gonna allow ourselves and organization to grow right? How they will allow it to happen. So very powerful internal journey. Hmm. And, and you talked about Bionic there. And, and so it's your, your latest company and the, do a lot of work around you know, proprietary solutions that you know, unlock new growth and competitive, competitiveness. So for you, how, how does Bionic work as a company? How is it structured? And how does that enable the work that you do to be so effective? Well, the first is, is, a, is a recognition that um, large organizations are really big to bigger efficiency machines. They're designed to optimize the knowable, right? That total addressable marketplace for the world. We're going to go one or you know, zero sum, <laughs> win the space versus someone else, right? With a single problem that exists, whereas budget and people in pain. Um, and that's fine. I mean, in, case, in fact, we have, you know, advanced, you know, degrees in college for that. You know, we administrate, we're masters of administration around that big to bigger. Um, and conversely is there's actually a form of management that exists for growth, right? It's not, it's the opposite of planning. It's the, optim, optim, uh, the opposite of optimization. And it's called venture investing and entrepreneurship. It's actually designed to discover the unknowable, right? And so that whole non-consensus high conviction is really about a mindset shift from focusing on the sort of TAM, the total dress of marketplace for the world, to the tap, the total address will need or problem. That's where outside forces and timing and conviction and giftedness live. But more importantly is that there are actually new needs in the world. And so very often when you go into the world where there's new needs, in many cases, customers don't even know. I didn't know I needed this. I didn't know I, I needed a complete gourmet box set of food delivered to my house three times a week to cook dinner when I normally shopped or I needed a you know a nine teraflop device in my pocket, right? These things are were at one point absurd, but now become, you know, we like to refer to as painkillers and not vitamins, things you can't live without. So the only way to discover growth in many cases is really through experimentation, which entrepreneurs are very good at, you know, lean startup movement, validation, et cetera. But more importantly is is understanding where behavior is going. That doesn't come through planning, it only comes through discovery. And so the only way to discover where behavior is going is to study and experiment in what customers do, not what they say, right? Because the say is what they already know. The do is the only thing that can lead you to the future when the customer doesn't know and you're trying to discover that growth. So those are skills. So the amazing part about this is that you have entrepreneurs who are very good at that. And the question is, is can we create investors in big companies who understand how to invest in portfolios? So they're not making five bets a year, they're making 50 with a 90% failure rate but they know the problem they're investing in, the total risk of problem, but they also know how to make non-consensus, high conviction investments and ideas that will mostly die, but they're teaching you the ones that will live. And that can't come through optionality. You need, you need, you need a portfolio to teach you from the outside in, not the inside out, if that makes sense. Mm. 
And so within the organization, you know, does, does it fall uh, the responsibility for this, can you do? Can you start outside of the CEO, or does the CEO need to be fully on board for this to occur? I mean, our our relationship with the world at Bionic is to start with the CEO. So we have uh, we're that permission set. To your point, Greg, it's sorry, Greg, it's actually the right question, which is, you know, that permission ceiling is so critical to get right. So you know, the CEO ultimately owns that. The companies are a direct reflection on him. Or her, and so how she believes about what's possible will limit what the company can do. Or, quite frankly, if she has a huge imagination, you know, the company will be that much bigger because the permissions, the room, the talents there, the money's there, the ideas are there. They're just trapped in that big to bigger de-risking optimization engine. We got to build a new engine. So the same way we have lean manufacturing or Six Sigma to perfect efficiency, where is the model to perfect growth? Well, it doesn't exist. And so we, we at Bionic have built a system we call the growth operating system, which takes the skills of entrepreneurship and discovery around building portfolios, growth investing, and also growth op operationalizing growth, op, you know, called growth ops, which is how do we create the organization to go fast? How does it launch something for 10 customers and not 10 million? So it's just changing the permissions in the system so they can go fast. So the only way to go faster is to do less work. So what, are we, what gears are we going to take out of the system and put in new that allows us to go to market in days and not weeks and months or years so we can get to the truth in the do versus say faster? And that's what Bionic does. It's that system. So it's not about the ideas. It's about building a capability. And we've done this successfully now with some of the largest organizations in the world, P&G, General Mills, Nike, um, you know, Citigroup and others who do this at scale as a way of working to create always on growth. And so you're talking about permission there, um, and that's how you ignite growth revolutions. As a, as a CEO of a company or a founder, what sort of things can they do to enable permission? I think making sure that there's truth in the room is the first thing. So uh, there's two ways to get to the truth. One is, as a leader, you have to break the addiction of being right. So if you're always coming to every conversation with the answers because of your leadership and your position and all the skill you had that got you to the top comes to experience and experience is great when something's known, but when it's been disruptive or new, that same leadership capability is your liability. And so as we're coming out of COVID and we're looking at all the change in the world and the disruption, what does that actually mean? Well, disruption is only describing the change in a customer's need. So you can define your customer in any way you want. The needs changed. And so the question is, is can we adapt and solve where the need went? So that's what disruption is. So I don't care if you're selling jets or you're selling you know, toilet paper, how, where, and what of those desirability, the viability of business, all those things have been changed. So you have to adapt, relearn. So I can't learn if I'm showing up with answers. So I have to come with the right questions. And so just like raising a kid, five-year-old, 10-year-old, ugly teenager, I have to come with different questions for each one of those stages. That's what executive, what investing rounds are for. Seed ABC rounds is the zygote to the ugly teenage years of building something. But each one of those things has different metrics, indicators, signals that I have to get right. I only can do that with questions. The second thing is I have to have teams that can tell me the truth. So large organizations are, are quite intellectually dishonest. They have good people who have to all make their ideas work. 
right? So if I sell the dream, I can never unsell the dream in a big company because we do so few bets, right? That we have to make everything work. What a massive liability as an organization if I can have to make all my ideas work. And as a result, the people will just literally lie to me because they have to. That's on me. So the question is, am I a growth leader and growth investor with the questions at the right place, the right time, and the right ideas and needs in the world? And have I created an environment where my teams tell me the truth? Are they working in the science of experimentation where I lower the cost of failure so the nature of relationship is based in commercial truth? That is what leaders have to get right. CEO down. Oh, very powerful. And, you know, I think back to some of the roles I've had and, you know, the, there is a challenge sometimes where depending on the circumstances, people find it difficult to actually come out and tell you the full truth. And, you know, whether it's been, you may have may have to make redundancies or there's been a change in direction because of the founder or whatever it may be. And so I think that's really, really powerful to think about, okay, how can we ensure that we create that space through the questions we ask for people to actually tell us the real truth of what's going on? Because otherwise it, well, you can, yeah. it could be a massive delay before we figure things out and it's too late. Yeah, in fact, I would argue that those delays are knowable. Like in most cases, with the exception of execution challenges or failure, you can kind of know up front before you turn on the engineering machine or the manufacturing machine or the technology machine, you can see the signals very early of whether there's commercial truth in the room with customers or not. And so we don't need to spend our money that way, but we need to increase the volume of bets so we can see the entire dimension of the need. If we only have one big bet, we have, we're making the idea work as opposed to solving the problem. That's why that outside in versus inside out view of the world is so cr critical to get right. It's our framing of that, our understanding. So, I mean, this, this to the point is so critical, Craig, is that when you, you hear about mindset, right? What, what does that even mean, right? So we all have mindsets and we have views of the world and you want a growth mindset, great. And you say, well, I want to grow. Well, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean I'm optimistic? Am I open? What it actually is trying to say is you should think about growth mindset as lenses, right? We all have lenses we view the world through. And we don't spend a lot of time thinking about what are those lenses and how do they view things? So I'll give you an example of this. When you sit down and you see all the success of, you know, many billionaires, you know, that we all recognize by name, Bezos and, and, uh, and you know, Elon or, or Reed or others, when you ask them how you bet your life, they have said effectively a set of lenses, a mindset that they're looking at a problem through and a marketplace that they're trying to solve. They're looking at their idea as just a solution solving a problem. So what are those lenses? Well, there are five and they're the following. One is proprietary gift. Why me? What do I know that no one else in the world knows about solving this need? If I don't have one, I'm passionate about an idea, but I have no proprietary gift. That's why I don't like the passion rule. It has to be, I've got a gift, obsession that's true. The second is I need to have extreme focus. I can't have five solutions to a need. I need the one, but I need the right one. And so one of my violations in my past is that I had two solutions, right? No, nope, you need one. That begins the journey because you can't lose focus. It has to be extreme. The third is, is you got to build painkillers and not vitamins. You got to solve chronic, lifelong, malignant pain. Vitamins are like, you know, hey, that was really nice and uh, I'll never talk to you again or never see you again or never try it again or I enjoyed it, but I'll never do it again. It's because it's not solving a chronic, lifelong, malignant pain. And so solving that need changes what how you solve it. You don't use it, make a solution like everybody else. You build a painkiller. And the last two lenses are about execution. What is, one's called the 10X, which is what aspect of what you do 
is impossible to replicate. So given enough time, the 10,000 Gladwellian hours of investment, you will find the one thing that is impossible to replicate and make it 10 times better in the rest of the world. And the fifth lens is you got to build a monopoly, permanence, lifelong hooks and barbs. So that's mindset, lenses that teach you how to bet your life. This is just one area, but there are many in our lives that it's hard for people to wrap their head around what that, this actually means. I use it as an example of one that's related to growth. Mm. You talked about permanence there and the hooks and barbs so that customers never leave. For you, when you are looking at, you know, you've got a solution there and you're trying to develop permanence, what are some things that you are looking for in ensuring that those hooks and barbs really connect and don't get ripped out? Well, it's a great question. I think people are um, always conflicted about like the idea of monopolies, right? And I think are permanence in a sense. And so there's this, you know, it's sort of like um, if you grew up in a family where someone says, you know, the money is the root of all evil. Well, the reality is, is not having any money creates evil in a lot of ways. <laughs> so the coveting of that is dangerous and bad. So the same way the coveting of permanence, the coveting, coveting of, a, of a monopoly is dangerous, but creating value that helps customers stay, right? In a problem with you for a, several years is good for them and good for you, right? <laughs> because they're not leaving. And also it helps you reinvest in a space so that the oxygen that goes into it ultimately becomes the best solution for both of you. So if you don't have the intention to do that or you don't know how, um, you often you know suffer from customer churn, trust, those things. So I think that these are um, perceptual um, challenges, but more importantly, as well as the hooks and barbs, it's there are a lot of different ways to create permanence. It could be supply chain, could be your sales force, could be data. It could be APIs, it could be AI, could be notifications, could be whatever it is. Could be the you know Instagram color filters. Like, you know, that's a free service with lots of churn, except people don't because the filters are so dropped that easy, the whole business works. Like, is that a monopoly? Maybe. Like, so I mean, like, or is it not? But you know, people stay. And so my point is, it's not about you know, uh, a, a covetless you know, um, you know, um, monopoly, so to speak. It's about creating value that is permanent in life because of its value. And I think this is so critical to get right in our understanding of um, how to create permanence. Mm -hmm. Moving on to something else, and, and this really resonated with me from someone who's worked in high performance sport and been an athlete for, for many, many years. And you talk about the only way to go faster is to do less work. In the sporting world, you get faster when you rest. So it, it, it's very, it's like exactly the same, it's parallel. So tell me a little bit more around in the workspace, why we need to do less work to go faster. Well, I mean, sometimes a lot of the energy we put into the work we're doing is actually useless, right? So if you're going after a space that, you know, is born to die, so to speak, you're experimenting with something, it's, it's a waste of time to do more legal than is necessary because the liability is not so great that the legal time that, that takes away from the experiment is worthwhile, right? So for example, I don't need to you know, hire a law firm to make it for 50 customers. I can do that in a piece of paper, one piece of paper, right? <laughs> I don't need to hire an ad agency when I can make an experiment that's you know, cookie cutter. Like there, there are things like that that um, 
to do less work would be outside the norm because if you're planning to a future that you guarantee is coming when you're doing discovery work, that's an unknowable question. So I think the boundaries of what you control and what you know are getting smaller. And so the idea that we can control, which is the purpose of planning, you have to set that down. So that box is smaller, so we should work within that confines in every regard, all the functions, all, this, all the skill so that we create speed. So what we're trying to get to a point is that the internal um, learning velocity of a company is equal to the rate of change outside. When that becomes equilibrium, rate of change and velocity of internal learning systems, you have a credible claim to being at market, if not winning. Uh, but in most cases, that's not the case because they're spending something, you know, spending inordinate amounts of time, energy, and money on things that ultimately never will see the light of day because they're over-engineered, over-legalized, over-marketed, when in truth, they're just trying to discover and not plan. Yeah. When we look at um, innovation and, you know, obviously the speed to do things, you know, what are the greatest hurdles in that businesses face today when they create innovation uh, or growth programs, and how can they tackle them? Well, one is I rarely use the word innovation uh, because there's so much brain damage around it, right? It's the, um, you know, launch a hundred things and none of it will ever die, right? And that's, I think that's one of the things that CFOs really just don't, I think the nervousness around innovation is largely because of that, that, that kind of a hundred flowers bloom problem. And then you have 100 teams that no one wants to fail. And so they all keep it alive and it never dies. And I light my mind off. I call it like the, it's the zombie factory of innovation, you know, super dangerous. You actually want the opposite. You want a, you want a way of working that is like an idea killing machine. <laughs> and so having done, you know, literally probably looked at a thousand or more investments in the last sort of 15 years and investing in now 40, 45 of them, um, you know, you never invest in entrepreneurs who love their idea ever because they'll make their idea work and no one cares about their idea they need to solve the need they need to assess the need they need their conscious and subconscious waking and sleeping hours solving the need with complete permission to with whatever tools required whether it's their technology or someone else's or their food or science it really it, the permission that a startup has to solve the problem is the advantage they're trying to make their r d work they're trying to solve the need with every option so I think this is the huge advantage around the speed is, is to start with many hypotheses and end up with one. And hopefully the one is the right answer to the right problem through a set of lenses that most people don't really contemplate when they start to make their startup work. Mm. And so, you know, looking for those, you know, different lenses, our world's been, you know, for many businesses that it's been very disrupted over the last 12 months. And, you know, we're probably seeing, you know, 10% of businesses who are, who are thriving right now. And we've got 90% who are kind of, or probably 80% that are kind of stuck and 10% that are, that have gone out, um, gone bust type thing. How can, um, what sort of lens do our leaders need to be looking at to capitalize on what's just occurred in the world through disruption? Well, I mean, there's there's all, there's so many dimensions to that. I mean, there's obviously the leadership journey, and we could talk about that. We can talk about the company journey. There's a difference between company building versus business building, right? So the question is, let's just break in those two boxes. So the the let's focus on the second one first. So business building, right? 
who I think it's important to ask the question of who is our customer now? Like, did our customer change? Did their needs change? Did the problems change in the world? Why did the problem exist that we we're trying to solve? So even if we're looking at the customer, if their needs change because the problem changed because of disruption, right? If you're solving something where a person needs to go to the office to get your value, you got a problem. They don't need a train or an office space anymore. They need a toilet bank. Delta Airlines, any of the major airlines have lost 40% of business to business travel. What percentage of that business travel is for the first business meeting? Half, 70%? So when Verizon bought Blue Jeans Network to compete with Zoom, who should have bought that company? Probably an airline, okay? Because they believe they're in the plane business. 40% of the revenue has nothing to do with the plane. It's about being there in the first meeting. So like that, that mindset is so, when you ask what is the need, how did it change the world, what are we solving for? And work backwards, what do we have? Then we change everything. So I, I think that's the permission question. So that's the business building question is to ask what changed in our customer need. And then the question is, is what do we have to change in our business to solve for that? Model, technology, understanding, setting old ideas down, picking up new, new, new going forward. So that's the business. The second, the first question, second here is really the company building question. And so in this case, I think it comes down to making sure that we have absolute clarity in our purpose, the obsession, the need in the world we're trying to solve for. Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's a few, but if your purpose is not clear today, more than ever, you're in deep trouble. And I'll tell you why. Um, one of my uh, friends and, and uh, I like to say mentors is a very famous general in the US named General Stanley McChrystal. And um, he talks about, you know, the role of special forces. And if you know about special forces in the U.S., there's a program called the SEAL program. And they put, you know, a thousand, every six to eight weeks, a thousand candidates go through that program. And only a single do couple dozen pass the test. And the question is, is, is it the right test? And so to cut to the chase, that test, that's, that month test has a thing called hell week, which most people fail in going through. They literally try to kill you. Hmm. And so who survives that test, but the finalists who make it through. And the question is, is how do they think to survive that test? And they did the research and there's really two cohorts. One co cohort is taskers. They do the task, rest, task, rest, task, rest. The second are optimizers. They manage their energy across the tests, right? So I mean, you know, otherwise. And then they plan for the next day, then they, then they rest, you know, optimize, plan, rest. So which group? Taskers are optimized, fail 90% of the time. I got this wrong. Do you have a guess for it's worth? <laughs> I, I would say the optimizers. You're correct. The very nature of this moment of disruption is that you can't plan. You literally can't. The only thing you can control is yourself and the boundaries of today. And then you need to set the work down and pick it up and start the next day over again. So getting your head straight on knowing what is the next right thing to do every single day, clean sheet of paper, allows you to survive these life-changing disruptions. But more importantly, is you need to know why. Why am I doing this? <laughs> and that's why purpose matters. That you, there is no map to the future. There's only the North Star. So purpose in this moment on the company building and how to lead yourself is really the purpose of a company right now as giving it the permission so the business can adapt and change from the outside force that have changed the need in your, in your customers. It's a long-winded answer, but what you're asking is an atomically huge question on what to do in this moment. You know, January showed up, I think people are starting to realize, oh my gosh, this thing is real. 
this COVID is going to be with for the rest of my life. These changes are not going away. They're permanent. I might get some of my life back, but I'm not getting all of it back. What is my life going to be? There's a heaviness and a gravitas about hanging out to that past and not leaning into this future. From surviving to winning is the mindset shift. It's a very challenging moment for that 90% of people who are struggling right now. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's really, really important, you know, being able to stay focused and, you know, you're absolutely true. You know, the, the successful people in the world have absolute clarity on their purpose and their vision. And it's then easy to say no to things. You know, when you don't have clarity, say yes to everything and you get confused and you move in all different directions and it just becomes an overload. Whereas if you have clarity on what your purpose is, then it's easy to focus, uh, to say no to things and then focus on what's happening right now. So really, really like that. For you, you've worked with some really big companies and great leaders. Who is someone that stands out for you right now that's in a, in a huge organization that stands out for someone that is able to continue to experiment and to be focused on a daily basis to the needs of the customer or the client? You know, I have, I have two, you know, that I'm very close with at, at Bionic. I think first, the entire executive leadership team at P&G is unbelievable. CEO David Taylor, Kathy Fish, she just retired, the head of R&D, Mark Pritchard, the CMO, John Muller, the chairman and CEO. I mean, you know, there's a famous book, Good to Great, right, that's out there. They're straight out of that movie, but they've become good to great to growth. Mm-hmm. They're every bit as important as like what Satya has done at trans, you know, transforming Microsoft with growth mindset and change. They have led through courage and, and, and remarkable um, leadership, but more importantly, thinking and working differently. Um, and it shows. I mean, we, we started five years ago with them a year before Nelson Peltz came to break up the company. So not only did we survive that test, you know, by ch- taking out the old P&G way and replacing it with a growth model that we helped build with them, um, but they also made all the major changes. So they transformed themselves, made the changes, and they are prepared for a pandemic and they've thrived. I mean, not only from the stock being the whole time high prior to COVID, but now being, you know, really truly deeply winning in the entire marketplace. It is amazing what they've done. You know, the other one I would think of who I think are remarkable is the CMO and disruptive officer of uh, AB InBev and the CEO, Carlos Brito. Um, they built something called ZX Ventures, which was their disruptive fund that we helped architect with them. But the level of courage and boldness that they did to think differently and work differently and invest differently against like genetic instincts to cost out and to grip, so to speak, a company, that's what they do, has been just to reinvent themselves. They now are, they are truly ambidextrous leader. They can operate and create best in the world. And so those two partners, we have many, General Mills, John Nudio and his team are incredible, Hannah Jones at Nike, um, so many others, Jane uh, Frazier, Vanessa Colella at Citigroup, um, Emily, Maya at Microsoft. You know, these, the, they are truly um, absolute transformational leaders that are, are, that are, that are changing the future. It's just, they're refounding the companies. It's amazing. Mm. It, I love that word refounding. And, you know, it's a challenge for people to come and change things. I, I noticed in New to Big, you speak around this isn't about a one-off innovation moonshot. It's about building a permanent ladder to the moon. Can you explain that in, in, your, in your mind, why that's so important, what it is and why it's important? 
I think people misunderstand success in the startup world, big or small. It's like, um, they think it's a straight line. They think it's about a visionary founder who, you know, solve the problem. In reality, it's an organization that learns how to solve a problem. And that mostly comes through failure. So it's, it's literally rung by rung by rung by rung that ultimately leads you to that point. In fact, many of the rungs come out of order. Like you may have a rung that you can install, you know, you install ahead of yourself, but you got to leap across many, you know, missing rungs, so to speak, that maybe not have, have been invented yet, having to solve technologies, marketplaces, tools, channels. Like, in, so that ladder of the moon is really not about the answer of planning. It's about where are we <laughs> leaning our ladder, so to speak, against what portfolio and need in the world, i.e. the moon, and then how are we assembling the, the organization to build the rungs. Some rungs we may have to buy, some will be missing for a time because of time, but they'll come in. And so I think m when you misunderstand how transformation happens over long periods of time, it's because you think you've planned the ladder and you've leaned against the mood and that's not how it happens. It just isn't. In fact, it's intellectually dishonest to even think that way. So the courage lives in leaning against the right portfolio, the right moon, and then doing the work to build the rungs. You're doing some incredible work and, and I can just see your, the way your mind works as I'm you know, watching you during the, during the podcast interview here. For you, how do you ensure that uh, you stay healthy and that you can turn up each day and ensure that you're delivering your best for the clients that you work with? I do a lot of meditation. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I take care of myself well enough. I, I could definitely you know, do more exercise for sure. Um, I do a couple things. One is uh, I, I keep a five minute journal uh, in the mornings and evenings. And they ask me three questions every day. Um, what am I grateful for? What I learned and could improve? And then what are my asks of the universe or God, right? What do you believe in? And it's remarkable between those questions bookending each day is that I, um, despite good and bad days, um, they orient me. They help me know that I'm making progress because Inevitably, whenever I had a good week or bad week, very often, especially during COVID, when I sat, you know, six days a week thinking I was going to, you know, lose my company. But in this case, we end up growing five, 10 percent. We had a great year, but it was scary. And when you can't orient yourself and ground yourself against progress, that those journals um, brought me down to the ground to know I was moving forward. I didn't drift because of that sense of drifting. It helped me understand and worry myself each day. Um, and always, I, my, the number one thing I wrote, at least in 2020, was that, and I wrote it literally from the beginning of COVID, was I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the test. Like you know, being, you know, falling in love with great tests is falling in love with who you're becoming, right? Who you, who you are going to be on the other side. You have to believe despite the challenge that you are going to be incredible on the other side of the test because of the work you're doing on yourself and your company. If you hate the test, you will not want to change. You will not want to grow. You will grate against it. But when you have a mindset of gratefulness and you know that, you know, you know, success is a bad educator. <laughs> when you get to the top, you realize there's nothing there. <laughs> it's all about who you're becoming. It's the grinding, the glacial, weight of the of of the valley that you have to fall in love with of how you get there and so i i think that this year was an incredible test for people to learn that again and also to fall in love with it fall in love with the test don't don't avoid the pain stare it down 
grow, let it hurt, let it change you, change yourself, innovate. So we did a lot of that at, at Bionic. We, and myself personally, is that we did massive change. I actually, and I'll close with this, which I think we're probably halfway through that process. I think for some people thought this was on a calendar year or an election cycle. This chapter is not. I think we're halfway through and there's a lot of work to do. And you can either be depressed about that, you can avoid it, or you can lean into it and grow and be grateful for it because it's here to make you change. Mm -hmm. Very powerful. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? That's a, that is a great question. I'm going to borrow that one. Great artists steal, right? Um, the, the, la, the first time I, sorry, the, was the last time I did something for the first time? Um, well, about a, about two years ago, truly net new, uh, I ran the New York City Marathon for the first time and the last time with 100 days of training, having not worked out for 20 years since playing college sports. So I woke up, I lost a very close friend of mine uh, to cancer, my age, incredibly one of my closest friends, brilliant guy, um, colon cancer within like nine months. I loved him, David Rubenstein. And um, I'd done a bunch of deep work around this time uh, and had shared it with him because I was one of the last people to see him pass. And I just committed like, all right, it's all in your head. <laughs> I manifest the future, lived it, dedicated him and started running with like a hundred days, 106 days before the New York City Marathon. And I'm, I'm not in shape. I've not run since college. I played college lacrosse. And, um, and I walked up, you know, f you know, 90 days later, ran the marathon, surprised my kids at mile eight. They didn't even know. I woke up at four or five in the morning, trained uh, and uh, surprised them. And, you know, in that race, at mile eight, it chokes me up. I told him, I said, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. It was, a, it was the lesson, which is you're greater than the pain. <laughs> you're greater than your, your physical body. Your gift is your mind when you decide. And, you know, I've, I have a 10 year old, 13 year old, 15 year old. They believe that. They know it's true. They can endure anything because they're learning how to become. It was just, it was an example, but that was probably the last true first thing I did for the last, you know, maybe for the last time, and this Leslie was survived, you know, 2020. <laughs> What's the one question that you would love to solve? I would love to solve the question of what is consciousness. I think that I, that's a lot of the scientific community is really going after this around like zero point theory and, you know, Leonard Susskind at, uh, at Stanford. But there's a lot, it's even the Templeton Foundation is coming out with a lot of public grants trying to understand, you know, you know, what makes us conscious. And I think that I believe that a lot of the stuff is going to come together in a, uh, a theory that is going to amaze us all. But I think that's the question that I want to know. And I do a lot of thinking about and a lot of uh, meditating about. Mm. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? You know, I, I uh, learning to master myself, my mind. Um, there's a there's a great quote by Hiram W. Smith that said, "When your daily actions are in concert with your highest beliefs, you have a credible claim to inner peace." And so, what is a perfect day? Right, a perfect day is just putting those things in ordering.
and not doing them out of discipline, but doing them out of belief, right? And so this is a really, really profound idea because when you're doing most habits, you're doing them out of fear, right? You're doing them out of perform. And the question is, why am I doing these things to fix myself so that I feel good about myself? But when you get the stuff right, what you realize is that that observer self, right, is looking at your human self trying to behave. <laughs> And it's saying, you know, Craig, I love you. And why would you get you kids, right? Like, why would you ever want something that wasn't truly for and with love for you, for them? <laughs> so when you think about that for yourself and you're asking, why am I doing these things to perform to feel better? <laughs> but if they come from orientation that you would only do them, not a fear, but love, and they're the right things, you have the integrity to unify right, yourself against those beliefs to have that type of peace. It's just a hard place to get to. You gotta get right in the morning, day, et cetera, but it cannot be from fear and performance. It needs to be an alignment and a journey of alignment. That to me is, is the answer to your question. Journey to alignment, very, very good. I love that one. It's probably one of the best, the best answers I've had for that question. You've shared some great insights and, and I, like I could talk for you, uh, talk with you for, for many, many hours uh, and in a number of different areas. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Um, the world's small, right? So um, LinkedIn is great. So you can always get me at David S. Kidder uh, on LinkedIn. You can get me at David S. Kidder at dot com. You can get me at on Bionic, my company, O-N. B-I-O-N-I-C.com. So I'm, I'm pretty public out there. So it's not hard, not hard. And I don't have some massive followership, but it's enough people. But um, always feel free. If you work at a big company, happy to talk about this stuff. I mean, I, we, we're going in lots of different depth here. But I do talk about that mindset and the change, the impact we have in big companies. But I also coach a lot of CEOs too. We talk a lot about this stuff because, uh, you know, our, our jobs and our life is, is just here to teach us about ourselves. What is it teaching? So you might not like the lesson or what it shows you, but that mirror is up and you're in it. So mm. what is it teaching you? And uh, I think, it, I think uh, pretending it's not there, avoiding it is just, it's an inevitability. So uh, stare it down, have the courage and grow and uh, life can become whatever you think of it. Mm. David, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today to to learn of your journey from when you were young and, and you took the, the appliance and, and that, was, that was kind of your curiosity as a kid to thinking about how you can solve problems in the world. And it's not about the idea, but it's ensuring that you're actually solving something effective and ensuring that the needs of your clients, your customers, or the people that you're working with are actually met rather than just trying to prove your idea that you have in your head your insights into the world of business and how we can thrive in disruption, I think is really, really impactful. And for me, what resonated with me the most was your ability to sort of think outside the square and look at things from a different perspective to how leaders have done in the past. And, you know, rather than just having a plan on a piece of paper and having every step mapped out, it's around how can we experiment and learn from those experiments to actually find the ideal solution to the pain point or problem that we are actually solving. 
And so I really appreciate your time today. You're doing some incredible work in the world and we can learn a lot from you. So thank you very, very much for, for sharing your insights. And, and the last thing I want to leave with is I thought it was really, really powerful that you asked the question around um, what is um, con- uh, was it consciousness? Conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is consciousness? consciousness yeah. 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 Thanks yeah, thank me. you, Craig. It's a real uh, pleasure to be with you and love your podcast and just uh, hope it's helpful. And we're all learning together. So it's uh, it's about the becoming and uh, happy to share those hard learned lessons and a lot more in the future. So thank you for that. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn And be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.